Happy Father's Day to you. I love that. If you see a dad, punch him in the arm. Can you imagine if we did that on Mother's Day? <laughs> how the church would just shrink, or if on Father's Day we gave the men roses and told them how pretty they were. <laughs> just very, very different, aren't we? I, uh, I have a mentoring program back home, and we're mentoring about 80 kids, and we were talking with some of the staff about what we could do for an upcoming event. Uh, they've taken me out of the, any sort of position of power. I can only, I'm on the board of directors now, and it's because of things like this. I said, well, we, you know what? I would love to do a barbarian feast for the guys <laughs> where we just cook lots of meat and we you know, put it on tables, and then you're not allowed to use utensils, and you have to wear headgear. <laughs> some of the ladies just looked at me like, this is why they took you out of power in this uh, <laughs> ministry. And then they, and they said, how would we clean this up? And I said, dogs. You bring in dogs. <laughs> wouldn't that be great? I mean, honestly, guys, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I think so. And somebody said, somebody could get hurt. And I said, headgear. That's why we have, that's why you're wearing a helmet. I saw a story uh, last week in the Associated Press about a guy who uh, is 55 years old and has always had the suspicion that his family, his mom and dad, are not his real mom and dad. What a peculiar thing at 55 to have all this feeling the whole time. So in his, uh, in his, uh, in his 50s, he began to research a little bit about where he might have come from. Now, his, his, his family is saying, no, you are our actual biological kid, and he's saying, I just, there's something weird about this. I don't think I am. And he, uh, and he began to research, and he found a photo of a five-year-old child who was, who was taken uh, outside of a bakery in New York 50 years ago, and he said, you know, that looks just like pictures of me when I was a kid. And so he had some testing done, some DNA testing with him and the family, and sure enough, uh, it's coming to pass that he, he was actually abducted as a child, and this is his real family. Can you imagine that happening to you? I mean, that would just be such an... And then to have this feeling the whole time that there's something else. There's this other family that... And that story really captured me, not just because of the human drama of it. I mean, it's obviously a fascinating story, but also because I think it parallels to some degree our experience as human beings. I mean, there is this sense that even if we grew up in these really great families, had a great mom and dad, there's a sense that we are disconnected from some sort of community, especially some sort of authority figure that we were designed to be connected to. That really is a Christian worldview. And in a, in a strange sense, we're all kind of in this dysfunctional situation because of the fall of man. Christian theology would teach us that uh, man is supposed to be in relationship with God, that he is actually designed to be in an intimate relationship with God. And outside of that relationship, he doesn't work right. We kind of think of sin and, uh, as uh, bad things that we do, and the penalty for sin is death, and that is accurate. But I think the picture more theologically, uh, it would be more theologically sound if we understood it like a flower is designed to be in a relationship with the sun, and outside of that relationship, the flower dies. And so the wages of sin are death because we are designed to be in relationship with God. But when God created man, in order to have a really loving relationship, I mean, true love, you have to be, you have to let the person have their own freedom. I mean, if you control somebody and you make them love you, it doesn't work. 
That's not real love. You can't uh, solicit a, a genuine, sincere response. So God gave humanity a way out. If you want to walk away, you can. Of course, we know the story in Genesis, man was tricked and walked away. And immediately, a relationship was broken. It had to be because God is purely good. And even though he wants to be in this relationship, he can't because his nature is so good that anything, he has all the agency, we would say, that anything that is not in relationship with him is, is by definition not good because he is good. And yet he goes on loving us. He sends his son to repair that relationship. I mean, the relationship that you were designed to be in is, is, would look so strange to us from our lens, from where we are. In fact, Moses describes it in the, in the book of Genesis. He says this. He sums up at the end of chapter 2. He sums up paradise by saying this. The man and the woman, they were naked and they felt no shame. That should seem to us as we read it a very peculiar thing to say. I mean, we should literally come to that part of the Bible early on, two chapters in, and we should just go, this is odd. This Moses man is, is an odd man. Uh, it would be no different than if I told you, you know, some friends and I visited Joshua Tree National Park, and we were hiking, and we had, we'd kind of done a picnic, you know, we ate, so we were hiking around the side of this mountain because we were, we were trying to get a good view uh, of, of sunset, and we were hiking around the side, and we were naked, and we kind of went around this corner, and we went up to the... <laughs> You would just sort of say, boy, back up a little bit. What was that again? It would be even more strange if I had slides. And I was like, and then we hiked around this corner. And then we. <laughs> they were naked and they felt no shame. I mean, I can't even imagine a scenario in which that would take place. Because when I'm naked, I know that I'm naked. There's, I don't, you know, how can you be naked and not know it or not be self-aware I know, and I never forget that I, to put my clothes on. I'm never at the store thinking, oh, you know, I've lost my wallet. Oh, heavenly days, we didn't, we didn't put on clothes this morning. What kind of relationship would you have to be in? What kind of infinitely trusting uh, uh, relationship that is built on pure love would it take the intensity of that that you would not be self-aware? Can you even imagine such a scenario? That is what you were designed to live within. And now it is very obviously we are not. I mean, that relationship is, in fact, broken. And what Jesus comes to do is he comes to earth to do a number of things, but he keeps, uh, he keeps trying to introduce us to his Father. I want you to know my Father. The ancients, uh, they, they, would, they would create uh, uh, icons, you know, the paintings, the beautiful paintings. And they would do this because there was no printing press, and so they had to find a way to teach theology to people who could not read, so they would do this with visual images. And they would put uh, three apostles or three angels on these icons. And, uh, and if you'll notice in the icons, the angels and the apostles, they wouldn't make an image of God, so they would use angels or apostles, but they were really representing the Trinity. And these angels, they would be looking at each other, I mean, their gaze would be the Father looking at the Son, the Son looking at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit looking at the Father as this way of showing how the, the sincere nature of their love and, and their, their uh, fixation on each other outwardly. And this purely loving triune God, the most loving thing that it could do would be to create other beings to enjoy itself. And that's why we exist. And yet we were given freedom. And with that freedom, as one judged as one, we walked away. And there are ramifications about this. 
I mean, if we are designed like a flower to live under the light of the sun and the sun is now gone, it changes the dynamic in which we live. And without this relationship with the Father, we actually see it mirrored in fatherlessness in our country. There are 27 million kids growing up without dads in our country. I grew up without a father. My father split when I was a kid. And uh, all sorts of dynamics took place in my home that really weren't natural. It shouldn't have been like that. It's parallel to other places. I saw this documentary about uh, a, a refuge, a wildlife refuge in Africa, where they had taken some young elephant calves and they had brought them to this refuge because their parents had been killed uh, for their tusks. And so they took these orphaned elephants and they brought them to this refuge. And uh, everything was great for a number of years, 10 years or so. But at about 21, elephants begin uh, a process not unlike puberty. And they go into must cycles. And what happens is, in a normal healthy elephant relationship within his family, a must cycle uh, lasts about two weeks and then it stops, and that's the biological progression into elephant adulthood. Well, with these orphan elephants, the must cycle began, and after about two weeks, uh, it didn't stop. And after three weeks, they began to get more aggressive, and after a number more weeks, uh, they began to get a little bit violent toward each other. And then after a number of weeks, uh, these elephants going through must cycles would isolate themselves from the rest of the elephant community. So they would be off by themselves. And then the elephants began to get extremely violent, so much so they were killing rhinoceroses down at the watering hole. And the people in the wildlife refuge had no idea what to do about this problem because they had never seen this before. And one of them got the idea, say, well, you know, the natural order of things would be to have the sort of father figure elephant, and maybe the, the older elephant, if we brought in an older elephant or two, would teach the younger male elephants how to be elephants. And so they shipped in some, I don't know how you ship an elephant, <laughs> but they did. They shipped a couple of elephants into the wildlife refuge. Would you believe it? As soon as the older elephants were introduced into the tribe, the must cycles, the, the biochemical reactions taking place in the young elephant's brain stopped at the presence of an older elephant by design i think that's how important a father is 85 percent of men in prison grew up in fatherless homes i was just in a prison a couple weeks ago and uh there were about 150 prisoners in the room i was teaching this class for a friend of mine who has a ministry there and i said you know just as a side note because i'm curious about this sort of thing how many of you grew up in fatherless homes almost every room every hand in the room went up almost every one of them and then I said, how many of you, keep your hands raised, if you grew up in a home with a bad dad and almost the rest of the, there were only about three or four of that whole group who said that they had good fathers. Isn't that amazing? And my friend there, I haven't verified this statistic, but she actually told me, she said 94% of people in prison are men. 94%. You know, we don't have a, a motherlessness crisis in our country. Isn't that great? We have a fatherless crisis in our country. And I think we have a spiritual equivalent of a fatherlessness crisis, too. Uh, my introduction to um, the idea of a father came in my mid-20s back home uh, in Portland, Oregon. I moved in with a family, uh, a theology professor named John McMurray, who's also by trade a landscape photographer. And I'd gone hiking with him a few times and taken some pictures, and we really kind of hit it off. And he said, why don't you move in with the family, you know? And so he had this apartment above his garage, and I lived in the apartment above the garage. And uh, it was just such an odd experience. I mean, here is, here is for me, uh, there's a man running around in his underwear in the house. And I'd never seen that before. That was really peculiar. 
And then when the dishwasher was fixed, he stayed. You know, normally the guy would go. <laughs> I wasn't sure what... But I began to see the kind of beauty that God has created of a, of a functioning family and how it works. And it also began to change my understanding of, of my faith, of my spiritual reality, of how I interact with God. Because probably before I understood the idea of God as Father that Jesus is always speaking about, I thought of God as kind of a genie in a lamp. I mean, if I pray hard and I do righteous things, God will answer my prayer. Or more like, a, what is it in Vegas, the slot machines, right? And, you, you know, you pray and you read your Bible every day and you, then you do this and then the things hopefully line up for you, right? And that, that was kind of my, in the absence of a father, in the absence of a living metaphor, uh, that's what I thought of as God. We see Jesus in Matthew talking to the Gentiles, the people who uh, really understood God, not unlike a, a genie in a lamp. And he's talking to the, the Pharisees, the Jews there also. And he says, actually, I want you to interact with God in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. This would be a dramatic paradigm shift for some of the people hearing about God. What are you talking about, our Father? Uh, that's a close, personal relationship. And so Jesus is saying, you know, people ask me, what is it like to walk with Christ? And I said, it's like getting your mind changed all the time. Because Jesus is always saying, you think this, but I want you to think this. And he's saying, you think of God like a genie in a lamp, but I want you to think of him like a father. I want to look at John 17 real quick. There's this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays really just before he is crucified, just before his death. God has asked him to do a very hard thing. And he prays this prayer in John 17 that is such a wonderful picture of an intimate relationship between a son and his father. I'm going to pick it up in verse um, 24 of 17. He's talking about the apostles. He's praying for them. He's talking to his father. He says, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. They don't know you. They don't know their father. Uh, I remember uh, not just a couple years ago, I decided I wanted to find my dad. Now, we, we all probably pretty much thought he had died, uh, or he was in prison or something like this. But through a series of circumstances, I was able to find out that he was alive and living in Indiana. So after 30 years... I contacted my father and told him, I contacted him, told him I was his son, and I was driving to his house. Can you imagine? <laughs> and that I was an author, and I just released a book about growing up without a dad, and he could get it at his local bookstore. <laughs> I can't imagine getting that call <laughs> after 30 years, but uh, I was so nervous. I mean, I was so nervous, and I, I couldn't figure out why. Why am I nervous about meeting a complete stranger who had no influence on my life at all? We had an enormous influence on my I mean, the, we are designed to need that affirmation. We are designed to need that validation as a living metaphor for the affirmation and validation that we need for God, from God. That's why it matters. I mean, I think of our reality as an educational playground, that God gives us light and the peculiar properties of light 
Light uh, exists outside of time. It's invisible. You can only see what light touches. Uh, it will go on uh, for infinity, forever, if you shoot it into a vacuum. Very difficult for scientists to understand light, and God in Scripture calls himself light. I mean, you have love, right? You have the biochemical reaction that takes place in your brain, this saturation of what's called the amygdala, and it makes you fall in love with people. It's basically a trick to get you to get married, but it's this... <laughs> but it's, it's God does that, and then he calls himself love. He says, I want... It's like, a, you know, my friend uh, David, they just had a baby named Xavier, and Xavier has this little, uh, like, orange circle that looks like a tractor tire, and then he's got this blue square block. I mean, you know, he's about a year old now, and he just sort of chews and slobbers on these things, and they're ways of teaching uh, Xavier uh, texture and color and shape. I mean, it's early, and I think of uh, light and love and father and sheep to shepherd and king to subject as God's way of saying, I am like this. I am like that. You're not going to understand me, but I'm like this. And I want you to think of me in this way. And of course, that relationship is severed. And Jesus comes down, I mean, in this perfect triune picture of God, this perfectly loving uh, deity that is, that is reaching out to humanity and saying, we want the relationship back. I mean, a perfectly loving being would have to let you go, and a perfectly loving being would have to come get you, right? And this is what we see God doing, true to his good nature. But we, you know, we have this thing where we just go, I don't know if, my, I don't know if God likes me. No, he's, he's perfect. He fathers perfectly. You know, the great dads, I mean, when I, when I meet kids who are just really sharp and, uh, you know, wise beyond their years, I'm beginning to see a common thread. I'm beginning to see parents in their lives who are willing to uh, almost confess their sins to their children. What I mean by that is they're willing to sit down with their kids and say, uh, I'm not perfect, and I want to explain to you where you got your temper. You got it from me. And I want you to know, it's very important that you know, I love you, but I'm not God, right? God is God. He fathers perfectly, and it's okay to be human. I mean, these kids have such confidence because they learn, oh, it's okay to be normal and human and to struggle and they're and and not only that but their parents love them so much that they would decrease their pride and humble themselves and say here's how i'm imperfect but i really want to make it up by saying i'm sorry and maybe we can work on something i mean i just see that as a common thread amongst uh kids who just seem really well adjusted um also the the metaphor of a father gives us a new understanding of how to interact with god it's very different than the genie in a lamp system, uh, the sort of voodoo kind of faith that many of us get trapped in or the slot machine. God doesn't work like that. And if we see God like that and the whole time he is acting like a father, we get very confused. And we may even walk away and say, I don't understand God, especially in the absence of a living metaphor of how a father works. In the house there at John uh, McMurray's, John and Terry would invite me down for dinner every once in a while, and I'd come down, and on one night, uh, they had three kids, Chris, who's the oldest, Ellie, and then Cassie is the youngest, and Cassie was about three at the time, and we're having dinner, and we're having macaroni and cheese, and Cassie lets us know uh, that she would prefer, if it's at all possible, chicken nuggets. That's not how she said it, but she's three. I think she said, I want nuggets. And dad, the loving father, said, well, you know, we're not having nuggets. Maybe we can have nuggets tomorrow night, but we're not having them tonight. We've got 
macaroni and cheese, so we're going to have that, Cassie. And Cassie uh, said, no, I want chicken nuggets. And John said, no, you're not having chicken nuggets. And Cassie began to cry, and she fell out of her chair, and she rolled across the floor. <laughs> we hadn't realized the degree to which Cassie wanted chicken nuggets. <laughs> And then she belted out a, a line that still echoes through the McMurray house to this day. She belted out the line, Dad, how could you do this to me? <laughs> we had to kind of cover our mouths, you know, because we're giggling. We didn't want to ruin the kid thinking that we were laughing at her. It was a painful moment in her life. <laughs> okay, so a loving father has some options at this point, right? The loving father can uh, say, Cass, you're right. Uh, we didn't know that we were hurting you in this way. We're bad parents. We're going to go get the nuggets out of the freezer. We're going to cook them. Give me about 15 minutes. Um, these children grow up to become third world dictators. <laughs> right? I mean, we, we see these people in the news. You can just watch the news and go, they gave them the nuggets. They gave them the nuggets. <laughs> John can, uh, he can get down on the floor and he can roll around with Cassie and say, I can't believe this is happening to all of us. We're not getting the nuggets. Mom won't give us the nuggets. <laughs> the number of ways, I don't know what that would do to a kid. I haven't seen that. Although uh, I have a, a friend who's a, a psychology professor up in Pennsylvania and he said, I, I was talking about this, and he kind of leaned over at lunch, and he said, actually, Don, he said uh, an amazing thing. He said, uh, children, if you revert to uh, sort of their misbehavior, they will actually counter you and begin to take the role of parent. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, 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 I tried it. He said, uh, my daughter, when she was about the same age as Cassie was, we were in a mall, and she wanted to go into a store, but we had to go. It was just me and my daughter, and I just read this article that said this, and so my daughter rolled down on the floor and said, I want to go to the store. She began beating her fists against the floor of the mall, and I was getting really frustrated, and then I remembered that article. I love this guy immediately. <laughs> he said, so, of course, I got down on the floor at the mall, and I began beating the floor, saying, I want to go in the store, too, but we can't because we have to go home. And my daughter got up and looked at me, and she reached down, and she said, Daddy, no, Daddy, no. <laughs> you were promised a takeaway. That's your takeaway. You can do that. But no, this is not what John did. John said, Cassie, this is unacceptable. Uh, you have, we have macaroni and cheese. We're trying to have dinner here. Your behavior is really out of order and you're gonna need to go to your room until you figure this out. And so Cassie went to timeout, right? She went to her room, and you, but imagine what Cassie is, is feeling, that, that the source of her love and security and affirmation and validation is okay with her experiencing pain. Oh, wow, that is a tough, tough, it's okay for her not to get what she wants. I mean, she would begin to question immediately whether or not that is indeed love. Because love is not working the way I thought love was going to work. And so if we're interacting with God like a slot machine, and the whole time he is fathering us, it's going to be a very frustrating experience. But the whole time Jesus is saying that he is our father. And we have these 
earthly metaphors for fathers, it goes easier for us to understand uh, exactly how that works. I have a friend named Josh Shipp who, uh, who is a youth speaker. He's, he's frequently on MTV. He's got a wonderful ministry uh, going around to high schools. And Josh and I were at a retreat together, just a few of us up in British Columbia, and we were doing some praying and stuff, and Josh shared his story. He had grown up in more than 20 foster homes. Can you imagine? More than 20 foster homes. And he went through each one, and he told me what he learned. He said, I learned from this one that I don't matter. I learned from this one that love is temporary. I learned from this one. And I thought, Josh, how did you become, I mean, successful? How did you become so emotionally healthy? And Josh said, well, I learned that you either get bitter or you get better. That we're not victims. And I think one of the things, one of the responsibilities of children of God and of father figures is to say, look, a fall happened. This really happened. We know the truth. We will be reunited with the Father in heaven through our relationship with Christ. This, by the way, will come in heaven. That's why we don't walk around naked, because in heaven it's going to happen. And right now we're betrothed. There will be a wedding. There will be a feast. And we're representatives of God. We are on a journey in the human epic. We are on a journey. We're in Chicago, and we're driving across Indiana to meet our Father. That's where we are in the human story. And we're nervous, but right now Jesus says, obey, obey me, obey, obey, obey. Be a living metaphor on earth for what it looks like to have a father, to have a relationship with God, to be an ethical person driving across to meet your father who, who will greet you with open arms. Cassie comes down from her room that night. John and I are watching Sports Center. Cassie comes down from her room. And she crawls into her father's lap there sitting on the couch, and she throws her arms around her dad's neck. And what is she saying at three? She doesn't have the language, but what is she saying? She's saying, Dad, are we okay? Remember the thing with the nuggets that happened? Like, are, are we okay? Are we? And what does John, John, you know, reaches around his daughter, and she's buried in his neck. She hasn't even said anything. It's just, it's just a grunt, right? And he says to her, Cassie, your mother and I are putting you up for adoption because of the nuggets. <laughs> right? No, 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 this is not what John says. John also, without words, grabs his daughter. And, I mean, the feeling that Cassie gets was, oh, I was worried about nothing. Right? There was always love. I can never be separated from this. He is fathering me. And this is the invitation. This is why Jesus wants us to know the Father. This is why he wants us crawling up in his arms, and he wants us to know you're going to be okay. This is what a father, I am made of pure, I am love. I am your father. What an incredibly important role for you fathers to play in the lives of your children, to be a living metaphor. John said to me once, we were out shooting, uh, taking a picture of Mount Hood up at Lost Lake, and he was putting a camera up on the dock there. It's a giant camera that you have to put a cloak over in order to take a picture. And he turned around and he said, you know, the kids, they're not my kids, because we were talking about fathering. And I thought, well, whose kids are they? They look like you, you know? <laughs> he said, my job as a father is to introduce them to their real father. That's my job. My main job is to introduce them to their real father. So fathers, thank you on this Father's Day. We set aside today just to thank you and honor you for what you're doing. You can't imagine how critical and important your role in is in uh, the lives of your children and your family, but also to all of us. 
We are not fatherless. We have never been fatherless. There has always been a father. Thank you. Thank you very much.